Hello, the following audio is from Sherm Global Mobility and Immigration Symposium held on November 17th, featuring EIG Managing Attorney Salman Chima and Hunton Andrews Kurth Associate Lisa Lott Wetback. The two discuss effective global mobility models that integrate immigration, tax, and relocation into an efficient system that coordinates the entire process together challenging service providers to implement innovative processes to improve employee satisfaction through facilitating a seamless transition. Enjoy the presentation. So today we are talking about uh, an issue that interests me. It's how to support employee experience through coordinating immigration, tax, and relocation. So just to give you an idea about who we are and why we're talking about this, um, both Salman and I are immigration attorneys. I work at the law firm of Hunt and Andrews Kurth based in DC. Uh, I've done both US and global immigration for about 10 years on and off different places, uh, wide variety of positions, including two years at USCIS. And I've seen this coordination work and I've seen it fail. Uh, Salman, you want, do you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Lisa. Well, my name is Salman. I'm a managing attorney with Erickson Immigration Group, where I actually had the pleasure of working with Lisa Lott for, I think, a couple of years, um, which was a great time. Uh, and yeah, Lisa Lott's absolutely right. So in, in our role, we are global immigration attorneys. Uh, we really deal with non-U.S. Um, foreign, you know, people that are going outside the U.S., either outbound from here or third country nationals, you know, people who have absolutely nothing to do with the U.S. And what we've seen in our experience is that their relocation experience really um, depends on how these three main factors that impact their relocation, immigration tax, and the actual physical moving with the relo vendor uh, really shape their um, their experience and the in, in how they approach that position when they get there. So we've come up with um, a little agenda, just some housekeeping stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're assuming you guys have a little bit of background in all this. And there's some things that we're not going to talk about, like uh, pets and business travel. But uh, what we really want to do is get into the models of relocation support. And there's really three models that we're going to touch on. And then we'll, we'll do kind of like a fun exercise, a hypothetical case study. And we're happy to take questions at any time while, while this is going on. So Lisa, I'll kick it back to you. One of the things that we're not going to be really talking about is COVID. And I just caught most of uh, the sailing through a storm presentation that happened just before this. And I think those our presentation and that presentation go really well together. They're talking about crises and how to manage crises. We're kind of talking about how you need to manage things when things are still going right. So I highly recommend you watch that. Um, there'll be a recording of it and think about it in conjunction with this presentation. We actually have very similar visuals, even though we did, the two panels did not coordinate at all. Um, so uh, we're, we're not gonna be talking about why you need all these services. We are assuming some level of understanding. We're kind of assuming that everyone here is involved in running a relocation program. We're also not talking about people who are just extending status. We're not going to go into the weeds on immigration. We're talking about how to coordinate these, these different providers when someone is new to a country and when someone is moving on from a country. Salman, back to you. <laughs> okay, thanks, Lisa. Uh, so, really, what we want to do is kind of give you guys a, an overview before we get into it of of where our respective teams come into a relocation. So, um, when you look at the main responsibilities, the immigration team. So, folks like Lisa Lott and myself, we would be dealing with work authorization, making sure that the foreign national has the right to work in a given country with the proper work permit. Um, the tax folks are going to be making sure that the employee is compliant in terms of their tax payments and that the employer is in term uh, compliant. And then there's the, the vendor who's handling the actual relocation and they're going to be doing, you know, the, the, the actual physical moving and, and also some, some registration post arrival stuff that we'll talk about as well. Uh, when it comes to, you know, the planning stage before we actually get into a case as immigration attorneys, we're typically dealing with the feasibility. You know, does this person have uh, uh, the, the kind of the chops to get a work permit? Do they have the, the, the minimum qualifications? 
On the other hand, the tax and reload folks are going to be dealing with cost assessments. You know, how much is going to cost the company and the employee, um, and you know, how how long is it going to take? So in some cases, what we share across all three teams, and this is one of the things that we're going to touch on as a potential way to streamline processes, is data and information collection. So with all of these vendors there are certain things that we're all going to need to know, right? Like we're gonna to need to know biographical information, where you're located, maybe your background, how long you've been working with the company. Um, all of these things can impact your, your, uh, your relocation from all three perspectives. And then once we actually get into the, the departure process, it'll be the work permit, um, you know, making sure that the individual has their house, housing situation squared away, schools, that they're packed up, they're ready to go. There can also be other instant, there can be other issues that can pop up, like getting um, you know, clearances from customs to bring your goods into a certain country. So what we really want to do is see where there's opportunities to have some kind of a sync, have some kind of synergy. Uh, and we see that sometimes with travel and post-arrival. So this is an area where our firms can assist with registration or social security. A lot of times the, the relocation vendor helps with that. So there may be an opportunity for us to sync there. And, and it's also lastly, definitely something you don't want both of, both groups doing, right? So exactly. you don't want immigration saying, oh, we'll take care of relocation when actually at the same time, the post-arrival relocation provider already has that on their agenda. So that's something that really needs coordination. We've seen people get their toes stepped on. So yep. coordinating and, and this step helps uh, the employee be less confused and uh, just helps helps everything go smoothly. Yeah, at least a lot. I've actually seen a, in a lot of instances, relo vendors outsourcing some of that work to a destination services provider. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who actually helps the employee get a bank account, get social security registration, residence permit appointments, um, and stuff like that, uh, you know, it, it, when it works well, it works really well. But sometimes, you know, we do see um, that our firms have to get involved and kind of fix up, fix things after the fact. So having that clearly delineated is, is super important. Um, and then lastly, you know, returning to the home country, especially if it's an assignment and not a change of payroll. Uh, and in that case, your, your, all three teams are going to be involved again at the end with whether it's deregistering a work permit, obtaining exit authorizations, um, pre-departure pre tax obligations. We, you know, we see this in Singapore a lot. We're going to show you that a little bit later on uh, with the IRAS and then, of course, packing and moving in terms of the, the reload vendor. And this is something that is, I said we wouldn't mention COVID, but I want to mention COVID here because usually if, if you're going home, you have a passport for your home country, it's not a big deal. Most people can just get on a plane. COVID has changed that. Uh, with limited flights and uh, it, it just makes this return to home country bit a lot more important than it used to be. We used to not worry about it. If we had to fix it later and like we had to get people deregistered after they got home, fine, that, that wasn't a big deal. But now it's, it's become increasingly important. Absolutely, so, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, what we've seen actually is countries that have implemented all completely new processes, like an entry clearance requirement. Um, and, you know, we're not going to get into all of that, but it's just something to be aware of that all three teams may need to be coordinating on. So these are the three models of support that we see most often, uh, and we'll be going into each of these specifically. Uh, one is what we call an employee-centric as option. One is a company-centric option. So, uh, and then one is what we would call the stable triangle. Obviously, this is what the presentation is about. We think this is the best way to do it. There's a lot more connections. But I just wanted to show you all three before going into each of them independently. So the first one is this employee-centric model. This is incredibly common, uh, especially with lump sum situations. Uh, and it's where tax, immigration, and RELO are all really connected to the employee. Uh, it's also common, I, I find, in large companies where the company doesn't really have enough bandwidth to micromanage all of these. They're like, all right, you're moving. Here's our policy. You go for it. You got to figure this out. Um, or you know, they're there to support, but mainly it's the employee working as a project manager. 
it's really good for companies, especially ones with large populations, because you don't got, have to be involved in every nitpicky detail of this move. Uh, it also works well for a motivated employee with a pretty simple move. So if you just have a single person moving to maybe a country they visited before, uh, or uh, maybe they were going to university there, they came home for a few years, and now they're going back to the country where they where they already have a network and they already know how to do business there. Great, perfect for the for for this kind of case. Uh, but there are some issues. Employees might be really good scientists. They might be the best supply chain person you've ever seen, but they're not necessarily going to be good with project management. Like I know I'm really good at managing other people's immigration, but sometimes when it comes to the like parts of my life, like making sure all the things I have to do for my personal life are, are lined up. Sometimes I get a little bit overwhelmed, even though I do this for a living. So that can, you're putting the employee in a position of power, in a position of, of responsibility, which is good, but it can be overwhelming. You also put the dependence out to the side. I don't think that's always the best case for dependence. For example, I know often in my life, there's times when I'm not the best person in my household to deal with something. Often I'll tell someone, can, can you just contact my husband about that? He, he's really the one who is better positioned to help with this. Even though it's the employee who's kind of the primary, we think of as the primary mover, they might not be the best person to coordinate everything for this move. Yeah, Lisa. Yeah, I definitely see this with a lot of uh, large companies, and typically, it's you're going to see it where it's not necessarily um, a, a internal transfer that's a managed move. You might see it a lot of times with a, a new hire who is coming mm -hmm. over from another country. So, what we see a lot of times in that situation is they're not getting a lot of the support that an existing employee is going to get. Um, and instead, they'll get exactly what you said is a lump sum. So the, the, the mobility team might say, you know, here's X amount of money. Why don't you go ahead and, and handle your own relocation, um, get your own, you know, read your movers and all of that. Um, inevitably, you know, we're going to be pulling the company in when it comes to immigration, for sure, right? Um, it's impossible to, to file a work permit uh, based on employer sponsorship without um, having the company involved. But Really, what we're talking about is how much support are you giving that employee, and when it's or new hire, and when it's not an existing employee, they don't necessarily have anyone that they can speak to other than maybe a recruiter, um, and maybe a hiring manager if the hiring manager really cares about them, which you know they may they may not. So um, I think you know when it comes to making sure that everyone has a really good quality experience in their move. Uh, we want to take into account what kind of support they're being offered internally from their employer. Uh, and that's really where the tax folks, the relo folks, and the immigration team um, can really work together and kind of determine what is the best path forward to getting this person across uh, to another country, whether they're getting a whole lot of support from their employer or not. At the end of the day, we, we all want to make sure that they have a, have a good experience because this is when I get questions about how to find an apartment in Dublin. And I have no clue how to find an apartment in Dublin. And I've been asked multiple times and all I could say is Craigslist. I don't know if they have Craigslist there. Uh, I really wish I could help you. But if I were connected with the relocation team or had that, that line of communication open, I could say, hey, relocation team in Ireland, I just got a question about uh, how to find an apartment in Dublin. Maybe if you can step in and provide that support. Uh, so the other model that we think is also very common uh, is the company-centric model. This is very common. I see it tend to be with smaller companies. It tends to be with someone who doesn't have that high a volume and they, uh, someone who's maybe new to the immigration system and really is excited about it. I hope there's a bunch of people like you on this call uh, and really is wants to help this person and support the employee. Uh, by coordinating and taking on all those uh, details for themselves. This is great, especially for group moves. I love it for group moves. When you have maybe a group of 10 going, it's way easier, I think, uh, than everyone working with the employees independently and the company can kind of act as a project manager. 
Also great for inexperienced travelers and short assignments. Um, sometimes by a company, I mean an HR manager. Sometimes that ends up being uh, a personal assistant for an executive. I've definitely had uh, different companies coordinate it that way. Uh, the issues with this is it can be overwhelming as volume increases. So it might be good for a small company, but once you hit 10, 20, 40 active moves, 50 plus, it's gotta get a little bit overwhelming, especially because of the, the timing involved, right? Tax is often a multi-year thing where the person is back, they've been back for a year and they're still dealing with tax stuff. I don't know if the, the company always wants to be the person reminding and, and really stage managing and project managing that. Uh, also dependents, again, get left out, out as an afterthought, which isn't always the best thing. Salman, do you have any other comments about this? Yes, so, you know, I, I don't see this as often uh, in my practice, but I do see it. And I've seen it, for, like you said, with smaller companies where maybe there is an immigration person within the HR function, um, or it's someone who has, you know, their main line of work is in benefits or something, and they've just been tasked with doing this because there's really nobody else. Um, and typically, because there's so much at stake for a smaller company in making a move, uh, they're going to want to control this process from start to finish. So uh, definitely with some of our smaller clients, I, I have seen this, this model. Um, as they get larger, you will start seeing a really well-built-out mobility team that kind of manages these moves for, for a larger population. Um, and then you'll actually start seeing more specialization. You know, you'll see uh, someone who's in charge of immigration, someone who may be in charge of mobility, uh, sometimes that's the same person, but a lot of times it's bifurcated depending on the size of the organization. Uh, and really, as they start to cede some of this control out to other parts, you see them moving more towards model one, where it might become easier just to hand somebody a check and say, you know, you're deal with it. Uh, but in the early going, um, you know, I think that companies do want to do, uh, do right by their, their new hires and by their employees, and they want to manage the whole process. And so, you know, we'll, we try not to, to approach this model any differently than we would with, you know, model one, you know, we still want to make sure that the employee ultimately has a really good experience, but ultimately more, more of our day-to-day -day communication is going to be with the company, making sure that that contact is um, taking care of what needs to be done on behalf of that employee. And so the problem with this one, again, like with the first one is we don't always have a lot of visibility with what goes on with, you know, the tax vendor or the relocation vendor, um, and it can become a lot for that company individual to that company representative to, to manage all of it. And so we just want to make sure that we're supporting each other to make sure that that employee has a good, has a good experience. So that brings us to this stable triangle. This is what I wish we could all do. I know it's not always possible, but uh, I think this is the ideal. Uh, Salva, go ahead. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, I do have this with a couple of our clients and, and I think it's great. Uh, and really with EIG, you know, we have a, a really good relationship with AIRS as a relocation vendor and with KPMG as a tax vendor. And some of our clients utilize that single pane of glass that we like to call it and, and kind of work together. And some of the benefits, you know, of course, collaborative. So, you know, when we can share information, um, you don't have to ask the employee for things over and over again. So um, let's say, you know, we know what their start date is going to be. We know that they have a, an offer letter. Uh, sometimes our relocation partners will send it to us if we don't have it already, or if the, the mobility team hasn't sent it to us. So that's a really good, you know, way to, to get things started um, and not necessarily need to go to the employee and ask them for things if we can avoid that. Um, like Lisa has been mentioning, you know, we can bring the dependents into it. Now they're, they're getting support, you know, whether it's with, with school or, or, or housing assistance. And now the dependent can, can help us out with, with, uh, you know, the process on their side. Um, there's more avenues for communication. Um, sometimes we get on a call with everybody. Uh, you know, we might have a call at the outset of a case with a relocation partner, um, and with a tax partner if needed, uh, just to make sure that we're all squared away. Uh, typically, you know, you're going to see situations where our strategy might be impacted by what's happening with the tax team. You know, maybe we we don't want to put them on the payroll of, of the destination country 
country. Maybe we want to keep them on home payroll, or maybe we don't want to do that. It, it could all be kind of which um, means we apply for a different work permit. Exactly, okay. exactly, um, and that and that can really impact the case. And if that's something that we end up doing six months later. Uh, because we never had that conversation with the tax team, um, you know, they're going to be pointing fingers at, at everybody, not just the, the whoever should have communicated that earlier on. So uh, it's a good opportunity to kind of to iron out problems in advance before they become problems. And so, you know, besides limiting repetitive requests, you know, the company doesn't have to do all the work. Uh, you know, we can work in conjunction with the tax partner, the real partner to, to make sure that we're handling things. Um, one of the things that we mentioned earlier was coordinating some of the key steps. And so, you know, let's look at that, that example of post arrival, right? Lisa, a lot like you've got a lot of times, um, you know, I'm going to use Argentina as an example. Um, in Argentina, you, it takes a very long time to get a work permit, you know, eight, under the normal process. It could take six, seven, eight months. Um, most companies, Companies are not willing to wait for that, right? So what we do is we use another short-term work permit uh, to get folks in as visitors and then get them a short-term work permit that allows them to start working in the interim. So that's great from a work permit immigration perspective, right? Like we've got them there working two, three weeks in, uh, but what's the problem with that? The problem with that is when you come in as a visitor, you cannot clear customs with a whole train load of goods. So you can't bring your furniture, you can't bring a lot of things, uh, you're just not gonna get through customs. And so what we've seen in the past is the company was very excited to get the, the move going, the, the, the employee gets down there, and next thing you know, they've brought a, a, a crate full of things and it's not being released by the, the port authority. Um, and the reason is that they don't have a long-term visa and they're not going to have it for six or seven months uh, which is something we're doing in the background while we get them working on a short-term work permit. So in cases like that, it's helpful to have the RELO partner involved so they know that at the outset and we're not sending things by boat that are just gonna be rotting on a dock somewhere. Um, and you know, that's certainly not my area of expertise, you know, customs and, and, and border kind of, you know, clearances and stuff like that. That's where we really lean on a RELO partner, but um, no, you know, when they know our situation and we know their situation, they can kind of make things a lot easier. For me, it's uh, school. And, and especially, uh, I, I tell people, I can put a high school kid on a plane and I can put an elementary school kid on a plane and they'll probably be fine. But I know middle school, middle school is where it's really hard. And I, I want to try my best to get that kid there for the first day of school where everyone else is doing orientation, they're not showing up two weeks late. Uh, so for me, it's great when I can work with a reload team who knows what schools this family is targeting. So if they're targeting the International School of Geneva or if they're targeting the French School of Geneva, I can then easily go to their, those schools' websites and say, okay, when's orientation? Are they doing remote learning? How is this, how is this structured? And what, how do I then create my immigration uh, timelines and where do I have to push to to get everything done on time? Or is it a situation where I actually want to split the move because I've, I've done this before for Indian families where for some reason the younger kids finish school much earlier. I think the uh, older kids have their exams later in the year. So I need to move dad and the youngest child in May but I'm gonna let the kids have to wait. The older teenagers have their exams in July or August and they have to stay home because I don't want, nobody wants to mess with those exams. So then are we doing a, a two-stage move? And the earlier I know this, the better because I can, I can usually work around it. We can usually make it happen, but not if we don't know. I often find also that when I'm with larger clients, if I'm on the phone with Relo, uh, on one case, often sometimes just other things will come up. So having that line of operation, that line of communications open will help because we'll get on a call to talk about Joe and then it'll be like, oh yeah, by the way, I had a conversation with Sam the other day. Did you know her wife is pregnant? And it's like, no, okay, how does that affect medical care? Are we changing the timeline here? Like, like I, I need to know that. And it, it really helps with those lines of communication to, 
if we can keep them open and uh, have not just everything go through the company, it, it really helps me do my job better and helps all of us serve the employee. I totally agree, Lisa. I think wherever we can coordinate and share information, I think it's helpful and it leads to a better employee experience. We do have to caveat one thing, which is data privacy and GDPR. So we would be remiss if we did not at least mention that. Um, there, and especially in Europe, of course, you know, data privacy is taken very seriously. Um, so there, you know, I would not ask a relo person, hey, you mind emailing me so-and-so's passport because I don't have it. Um, that's just not something that's gonna fly and can get you, your, your, your firm into major trouble um, and the employer as well. So, you know, I think it's just something to keep in mind in the back of your mind. And well, I, actually, I wouldn't say in the back of your mind. At this point, it needs to be in the front of your mind, especially when you're de dealing in, with the uh, EU. Um, when you're sharing information, you have to think, am I allowed to share this? Am I sharing it in the most secure method possible? Um, it, it has to pass that sort of smell test, you know, if this is something that you want to do. But of course, in general, yes, if there's opportunity opportunities to share information and we're all privileged on something, um, you know, then, then we want to do that to the benefit of the employee. So, by the way, we are taking questions. Um, I don't think any have popped up yet. Uh, Yvette, if you could correct me if I'm wrong, let me know if um, there's a question I'm missing. But uh, we're going to go on to this case study. This is our family. Uh, at one point, I had the wild thornberries in here, but I decided to change it over to this family. They've been living in Australia. They're headed to Singapore for a short-term assignment. And uh, after that, they're probably gonna be there for one to two years, but pretty soon the whole family will be headed off to the United States back home. So we kind of have a three country move and wanted to go through how, this is something that we've seen. Like we, yes. we work this move, <laughs> it's complicated. I, it's, I was just working on this this morning. And <laughs> I, I, I know that there's a pet there. I'm not going to talk about the pet. It's complicated, uh, especially for Singapore. Uh, but Silent, go ahead. Yeah, so let's talk about, you know, all of the steps that are going to happen in this case. Um, so now we know that they're already in Australia. So we're assuming that they have work permit authorization, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're US citizens. So what's the next step to going to Singapore? Well, First off, we have to kick off the work permit process in Singapore. So that means advising the company to start labor market testing, which is now a 28 day process and then filing for work permits for them, right? Uh, now let's assume that we get that done and they've gotten approval. The next step is twofold. One, because of COVID and I promised that we weren't gonna get into COVID but we're certainly, we're just gonna have to do that here they're going to have to get an exit clearance to leave the country, right? Or do they? They may not. There are some exceptions to that, but it's something that we want to look into. Uh, do they need an exit clearance to leave? So that's the first thing we're going to need. The next thing we're going to need to do is get an entry clearance to get them into Singapore. And I don't know if anybody out there is listening to this has had the situation come up, but your exit clearance might take anywhere from one to three weeks to come through your entry clearance for Singapore is going to be granted for a three-day window. That's it. So you have to arrive, you know, within one of those three days and sync it with that exit clearance um, so that you're actually allowed to get into Singapore and, you know, get your work pass and get started there. And cross I'm your fingers, the get flight in. doesn't get canceled. Yeah, you have to hold it. There's like no flight flights out of Australia now. Right. So your flight may get canceled. And then, and we're not even talking about the other COVID-related stuff that you might have to deal with, like the 14-day stay-home notification and all that stuff. Um, but, but that's just to give you get you started on in terms of managing this move. So, you know, and then the other things that we need to bring in our tax and relo folks on. So the relo folks need to know that there's a very limited window within which we need to get this whole family over, uh, or maybe we're just sending the mom or just sending the dad, but you know, the primary work permit holder, but we're gonna need to get them involved in that stage. And then the tax folks are gonna have to be getting involved because we need to get them off of their Australian payroll. There's probably gonna be some kind of superannuation. You know, they wanna get their work permit canceled so that they can get their superannuation funds released to them. Um, so that's something that we need to, to, to advise them on. Um, and so that's an area where when we're working together, at least in that initial stage of getting them out of Australia and into Singapore, 
uh, we're, we're going to want to have uh, some kind of sync on that. So Lisa, I'll kick it over to you now. We're in Singapore. We've gotten through. We've gotten past the stay home notification. We've been working there. What are we doing next? So the next thing you are doing is uh, doing some post-arrival registration, uh, making sure that an apartment is there ready when they're ready to come. Singapore is one of the tightest uh, housing markets in the world, most expensive housing markets in the world. So from a company standpoint, does that mean that you find an apartment that and you book it kind of in advance? Or do you just meet, figure they're going to stay in a hotel for three weeks until the apartment is ready? How are we going to plan that? The other thing you got to think about is what about the non-employee spouse? Usually you have uh, an employee who is going to be the one that you're really focused on. But does their spouse have a career? Is it the kind of career where they want to keep working? Or if they're a writer, you know, best case scenario, they're a writer or a stay-at-home parent. But if they're doing anything else, even running an Etsy shop, right? You got to figure that out. And that has to be done early, identified early, so we can figure out if they're even eligible to, uh, for some kind of work permit in Singapore. We also then need to do some in-person uh, pictures and they have to go to get their uh, work permit registered. Good thing about Singapore is most of the processing is online. There's usually just one in-person visit, uh, but we gotta make sure that that's all done and that they don't start work until that's done. So we're also managing the company, the new uh, manager's expectation. If they thought that you know the day, if, if Joe and his family gets here on Tuesday, he gets to start Wednesday, that might not be realistic. We might have to address that as well. And so that's coordinating between tax, company, uh, the family, the dependents, is the dependent looking for work? All of those conversations should happen as early as possible. So when we're actually uh, putting them on planes, all we're worried about is will they have a place to sleep and when are they gonna be able to show up at the office? What other last things do we have to do? Um, and also again, school, like I mentioned, that's something I personally tend to worry about because I feel like that's probably a big part of this. So uh, making sure that we're getting kids to school in the right uh, time, if possible. Sometimes it won't be possible, but I want to let the family know that as early as possible. Lisa, so, it also looks like we've got three kids there under the age of 12 who are all going to need vaccine verifications to get into Singapore. <laughs> we also might need a nanny, right? <laughs> right. That's, that's true. Definitely, that's and definitely that's, possible. So are we bringing over a nanny? If yes, yeah. from what country? Or are we bringing grandma? Is grandma right. actually part of this family? And will, is there any option for grandma to come in to help out either at least maybe early in settling yeah. in? Right? There's, a, there's a lot of things going on here. Yeah, you know, Lisa, I'll give you a, a real world example. I recently worked on a very high level executive move from Hong Kong to Singapore um, and this individual had three kids, one of them who had special needs yeah. uh, and actually had a uh, dedicated uh, nanny and domestic staff just for that child and then a nanny for the other kids as well. Um, so what we actually had to do there was figure out if we could get uh, the nannies in. Um, and in that case, you know, the actual, the employee becomes an employer. And so now you have to help them get set up to sponsor the domestic staff to get in. Um, so that was another area where we had to coordinate with uh, tax and relo because now we had to figure out how his, um, you know, how his uh, tax situation was going to look because he was now an employer of, of the domestic staff. And we also had to figure out how we were going to get them in um, from a flight perspective because um, and again, that was a COVID issue because we couldn't quite get everybody in right away uh, because of the entry clearances. So that, that was another situation that we had to deal with as well. How um, early did you find that out? So that's funny. You know, it, it came up. So the, the company initiated the move. I had a call with him. And on the phone, he tells me, oh, by the way, I have, you know, domestic staff that need to come with me. <laughs> He has a start date, like it was, you know, one month, like typical Singapore, like well, we're going to start in like three weeks. Um, As opposed so to now, three months, which is what I usually tell people, like give me right. three months and I can do it. Give me three weeks and good luck. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, they, they're looking at it and saying, well, you know, I know I can get an EP in three weeks, like, you know, get me over there. But, you know, this is someone who's making seven figures a year. He's used to kind of things getting working out. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of had to set expectations. And I think setting expectations is a lot easier 
for the employee, for the business when all of these vendors are aligned. So when the tax folks, the, the, the relocation partner and the immigration partner are aligned, we can kind of have that conversation and say, you know, this is just not going to work. Um, another issue that we had was that one of the domestic staff um, was not from one of the countries that Singapore allows in domestic staff on sponsored work permits. So, you know, we had to kind of break that news to the family. And um, those are things that, that can really impact a relocation and can make them decide, you know, in their mind if it was the positive experience or not positive. And um, the more of that information that we can be privy to earlier on, the better off, you know, we'll be. So, you know, it's a situation where, uh, like we've been saying, communication is key. You know, you can't ever over communicate enough when it's coming, when it comes to relocation. We have to remember the human aspects. You know, at the end of the day, this is somebody's life. You know, they're getting up and moving to a whole new country. It's a whole new experience they've never dealt with. They're really leaning on us as experts and also just as an ear to, or a shoulder to lean on um, to manage that move, kind of give them the proper advice make sure that all of these things are, are handled um, or put them in touch with somebody who can, can handle it for them. Um, I think that's something that we kind of can lose sight of in the, in the thousands of cases that we manage, uh, but we really can't. You know, it's something that we've got to keep an eye on. So then once they're done their two years, uh, suppose uh, it's hopefully COVID is no longer an issue, but for Singapore, you still do have exit requirements. Uh, often, if there is a tax bill, this could be not just because of earnings, but because of vested stock options that has to be paid before the company, the country will let them leave. This is uh, yep. they can actually get stopped at the airport. Is, is I've seen that money. happen. I have had somebody get stopped at the airport because of a, a payment, and and that's again where the relocation vendor and the tax team are so important because yeah. we have to coordinate when they go off of payroll. Um, if they don't go off payroll at the right time, then and the notification is not made, they will absolutely get stopped at the airport on the way out. So we'll have to figure out tax, timing with the immigration deregistration, also long-term plans addressed. I bring this up because uh, often you have kids who are growing up while their parents are on the road, and they might form long-term connections to a country that for their parents is kind of a brief stopover, but for them, maybe this is where they want to be. This is where, especially if they hit 18, right during this, this last move, they've decided, okay, this is where I want to go to college. I'm ready to start my life here. Or I want to get permanent residency. Even if my parents are moving on, I'm ready to, to do permanent residency here. We don't really see it so much in Singapore, um, but I definitely see it in the US. I definitely see it in Australia, definitely see it in Europe. So. It's also the kind of thing where you want to make sure that you are helping the family and all members of the family plan so that their needs are met, not just dotting the I's and crossing the T's to get them out of the country and get them off payroll and get all taxes paid, but also to meet potentially longer term uh, interests. Now, a lot of companies, this might not really be something that you cover. That's fine. I often will do this where a company says, we don't cover it, but we have these great immigration attorneys. If you want to keep working with them and set up a private uh, agreement with them, they might be able to help you with some of this long-term planning. That's definitely uh, something that I think both of our firms do and probably every firm will do, uh, but it might not come up in an immigration conversation. It might come up in a relo conversation when it said, okay, well, we're packing up stuff, but Joe is staying to go to the Singapore National University. We gotta make sure that we, are the movers gonna be able to move his stuff over to the dorm? It's like, oh, wait, your kid's staying? Have we got a student visa for them? So that's when, again, having those lines of communication open, having the person who is on that relo call know enough to at least know that this is an immigration question and to call up immigration have access to that. That becomes a key point. And this is why we really think the stable triangle with all those different lines of communication is really the ideal structure. You might not be using all of these lines of communication at all points, but you should have them open. I'll give you another example, Lisa, where I've seen this recently. Again, Argentina, I don't know why I keep coming back to Argentina, but um, we had a situation where um, an employee's daughter uh, st was still in Peru. So she was coming over on a Mercosur 
Um, but like I said, which of, is the uh, it's like the NAFTA of right, southern, sort of, of the like southern the, or the EU, yeah, of, of South America. Um, and so we helped with that, but we had no idea of what else was going on in their lives. And um, it turned out that the the employee um, wasn't able to bring their daughter over because they didn't have a, a DNI, a DNI card that they needed to 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 help bring the daughter. It's a it's in very Peru complicated. or in Argentina. In Argentina, in Argentina. So she entered in, and because of these long COVID delays, it's not you can't get the DNI card issued. Without the DNI card, you can't, you know, prove that you have nationality, you know, that you have a, a child that needs to come over. Um, and so we didn't know this for a couple of months. And then the, the employee reached out to us because um, the, the relocation vendor was helping out with, with obtaining the DNI. And what we did was we actually went to our partner uh, in the region who helped us get a digital DNI, which the relo vendor and the employee didn't even know existed. Uh, so there's actually, this is one of the things that Argentina has done really well is adjusted to COVID um, and is issuing things like DNI cards and quill numbers, which are like our social security numbers here uh, digitally, which used to be something you had to go and you know do all this stuff in person. And so we were able to use the digital DNI to help bring, bring the child um, and so that's where we talk about, you know, communication is key. If, if they don't know where all their resources are, you don't know who might be able to help you. Um, and even though we weren't involved in that process, we were able to get in and, and, and you know, it could it result in a positive outcome. I had a similar case with a kid who was born while the family was on assignment in Germany. And mm. they were getting ready to leave and the kid didn't really have a birth certificate. They had kind of, the German uh, system was just so opaque to them. They had to go to three different offices. And then I think it was an Indian family who was, uh, but I think maybe a mixed Indian and U.S. citizen family. So it was getting the German birth certificate, getting the uh, certificate of birth abroad so that the kid could get then a U.S. passport. And at the same time, possibly getting uh, overseas citizen of India card, those OCI cards, which are some of the most frustrating documents to get in the entire world, right? Right. So, and this was done well, they were like, I have to get back to the States, I'm, I'm going, and how do I get, and my, I have an infant, what do I do? <laughs> and that's where it was coordinated with RELO, Local Immigration Council, and everyone really getting on the same page uh, as early as possible. So this has been more stories with Lisa and Salman. Um, we could probably keep going on this for a while. I know we have about 15 minutes left and uh, Lisa, definitely so I think to... we actually have a question here. Okay. Uh, and the question comes from Stephanie. Uh, can you please touch on situations where divorce may be occurring between partners and how would that be handled? So that's very interesting that you bring that up. I've seen this unfortunately happen in a couple of cases. Um, you know, we've seen it in a couple of different situations. One, I've seen it where an employee was uh, deriving work authorization through their spouse. So I've seen that in, in Ireland, for example, we've seen, uh, you know, where someone um, uh, obtained a stamp 1G through their spouse and was working on that. And then the relationship broke down. Um, and now all of a sudden they're losing work authorization and we have to, to pivot to, to getting a work, you know, work permit. Um, I'm not sure that that really comes into play with a with a vendor move unless it's something that's going on while our, our relocation is happening. Uh, in that case, then definitely we want to make sure that um, work authorization is not impacted because if it's the sponsored spouse, then all of a sudden, you know, we're and they're no longer in the picture, you know, we have to put put an end to that move. Um, I don't know, Lisa, if, if Lisa, you have any, any specific examples there? One thing that could happen often, especially for Canada, we see families that move up and because Canada has open work permits for spouses, similar things happens for the Netherlands. Often my, my client doesn't really have to bother with the whole work permit thing. They just say, okay, your spouse is going to Canada. Great. You get an open work permit. Let us know when you're there and we'll put you on local payroll. So if a divorce happens then, uh, my client all of a sudden has this essential worker that is embedded in their Canadian enterprise that they, they want to stay. Uh, and how do we then transfer them over to a different status that is no longer dependent on their, uh, on their no longer spouse? And then also what happens with the kids? 
Are they, where are the kids gonna be going? Do we have to change dependencies for, for the children? So that's something that I have actually never seen, thank goodness. I've definitely seen people get married. Um, yeah. Actually, so let me deal with that one because that comes up a lot, especially with the Europeans coming to the US, right? Europeans coming to the US, they don't often, there's a lot of couples who aren't getting married in Europe. Uh, it's kind of an overgeneralization, but it happens, especially in the Netherlands and Belgium. A lot of my cousins in Belgium, they're just not getting married. What's the point? But then they get an assignment to the United States and in the United States, you can't bring a, a partner unless they're actually married. Uh, so I've actually had people get married on their go-see trip. I had a couple, it was like, I, I was a wonderful little thing. Uh, they were going to uh, Santa Cruz to look for housing in the Bay Area. And I actually figured they could get married at the local courthouse. So I had this Dutch family get married in the US on their house hunting trip so that I could get L's and L2s for them because uh, they had two small girls and that was just not gonna happen. We're not gonna be leaving dad behind. That was, they were gonna get. So it's always really funny when I know someone's getting married before their partner does, that's hilarious to me. Uh, so, but definitely something that can happen, right? And also if you can coordinate with Relo, Hopefully, if you are as the immigration council or if you are as the company realizing that this, this person is getting uh, married on their go-see trip, maybe the relocation team who's helping book the hotel might be able to like get some flowers or just do some a little extra thing to so that the employee probably would really appreciate knowing that you consider their whole life and they're getting married on this random day far from family. Uh, and maybe there's something that through coordination, you can make that uh, not scary, intimidating, frustrating situation for them. So yeah, definitely an issue that has, has come up, will come up and uh, definitely something you want to address. Also, we're seeing more single families come, single parent families, which is yeah. where often nannies come up and grandparents. So it falls to the company when, they're, when you guys put together a reload policy, how do you define family? Right? If you're doing immigration support for the employee and their family, what is family? Uh, and then communicating that clearly to immigration, relo and tax saying, we're providing support for this family. In that context, it means mom, grandma, auntie, or whoever it is, nanny, whatever it, the, the circumstances, boyfriend, this I, I next generation family. And I think some countries are are responding to that in a much more progressive way than than others. You know, for example, Canada now has these super visas for parents. Um, Singapore, you could always get a long term visit pass for a parent, depending on your salary level. So I think more and more countries are recognizing this and they're they're reacting. Um, Lisa, we have another question here from Nina, how do you go about forming a stable triangle? Is that something organic or are there matching services? <laughs> you work on it. Um, so uh, I'll try answering that first. Let me see if I can bring us back to that slide. Uh, so I usually, if I'm talking to a company, I will say, okay, great. Who's your tax and relo providers and can I talk to them? So it's as easy as that, uh, or it can't and say, yes, yep. Let me send you a, a, the company saying, great, here's a, here's the contact information. Let's set up a call with all three of us, all four stakeholders here, probably all four first before you involve the employee. Let's have a quick call to discuss, make sure we're all on the same page and to see how we can coordinate this. So it can be really easy. Uh, for clients who don't have a real provider, since I used to work at EIG, I love heirs and I would happily refer anyone to them. Um, but if you have your own real provider already, I will happily work with, with them. I also know that some companies, some of the smaller companies can't really uh, maintain a relationship with KPMG or some of the bigger ones. So I actually have a global tax network I refer to. So if you're trying to build the stable triangle, uh, if you're maybe trying to transition from this company centric one to a stable triangle version. First part is identifying your providers. And then next part, either through who you're working with now or through recommendations from one of your providers, because we all know each other, right? We've all worked with each other on other clients and other projects. So 
your immigration person should be able to recommend a tax person. Your tax person should be able to recommend an immigration person. And uh, then once you identify those providers, it's just setting up a call. Sometimes it's setting up on your more complex cases. Sometimes it's setting up a Google spreadsheet and it gets kind of complicated. But at a minimum, it's just a call. No, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of times people are just afraid to, to ask. Uh, you know, I, I've worked with a number of tax folks, a lot of people from PN, PwC. I've worked with Ayers. I've worked with Grable. I've worked with Plus Relocation. So I have, at this point, a pretty good relationship with all of them. I think it really, it starts with the client, right? You've got to make sure that your client is comfortable with whatever your strategy is um, in terms of reaching out or, or who you're going to talk to. Um, and then after that, if they're, they're amenable to it, then certainly have that conversation. And I think the trend in our industry is moving towards a little bit more of these types of partnerships. Um, you know, we're seeing, you know, they're, they're outside the U.S., you're seeing a lot of folks, I mean, a, lot of, a lot of firms that are actually starting to handle more of these in-house, like they're doing their tax and their immigration. But where that's either not legal or where it just doesn't make sense with a company um, you know, we're seeing a lot more partnerships, like we're seeing immigration, relo and tax start to enter into these, whether either they're loose associations or very firm partnerships with each other to kind of sell their services as a bundle. Um, so I think, it, you know, it's something that everyone, that's a conversation everyone's having with their leadership, you know, whether, whether it's with their, you know, within their firm or with the clients that they represent. A lot of it is driven by clients, Lisa. <laughs> like, you know, they want to see, you know, the cheapest possible option that still gets the service level that they want. Um, and, and when so you mentioned illegal, to adapt. yeah, when you mentioned illegal in the US, um, for those of you guys who haven't maybe worked with lawyers as much, we're actually ethically not allowed to work in companies with uh, other, other non lawyers. So in my team, I, in my firm, I do have tax providers, uh, but they don't really do this kind of work. Um, and, but I'm not allowed to form a company with a relo provider. It's on all of our eth state ethics rules. So, whereas in France, that's totally not, that's totally fine. A lot of our relo providers are also, are also immigration providers and they do one-stop shop. So it's totally doable. Just have, it starts with one conversation. Salman, do we have any other questions? I don't see anything in the chat. I think we just have a couple of minutes. So uh, just a quick note that after this, um, we will be in the uh, the other chat room, the the breakout session. So you know we'll be there for a little bit after if anybody wants to have any more follow up on anything that we discussed today or anything in immigration, global immigration at all. Uh, and I will be presenting tomorrow on business travelers specifically. So if you have any questions about that, come to my session. I think it's at 2.30. Also, here's our information. Feel free to link to us. Feel free to email us. We'd be happy to talk to you. Both of us really love what we do. This is, this is fun for us, right? This is what gets us happy. Like helping people do this, helping explain this, helping people navigate this world. Is really energizing. So you're not at all putting us out by asking a question. It's like, great, we could help somebody. We can make somebody less scared, make someone less stressed, make it better for a middle schooler who is going to a strange school in a new world. So um, we're here to help. Feel free to reach out.